Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. This week, I am really excited to bring you Jason Bailey, founder of the Art Gnome blog and the creator of the biggest online database of the world's best known artists, which he likes to call the money ball for art. In this episode, we talk to Jason about what the money ball for art looks like, how data can revolutionize the way we look at and understand art, and how technology like AI is affecting the future of the art world. So please allow me to welcome today's guest, Jason Bailey. So Jason, you self-identify as an artist, you come from a family of engineers, and now you're building this database called ArtNome. Let's start there. What is ArtNome? ArtNome was first a, a giant database, the, the world's largest database, and no one's corrected me on this yet, but the world's largest, largest database of known works by the world's most important artists, right? So it's the, the complete works listed in a database. I, I spent three years and you know thousands of hours and dollars building this out sort of just as a, a, a hobby slash passion project um, and realized that if I just kept doing that, I'd just run out of money, right? So I, I started the blog, the Art Gnome blog, to like share insights from it and got kind of distracted because I realized that I, I just love writing about art and tech in general. So I've kind of been writing about machine learning and blockchain and all this other stuff. But I'm coming back around now to uh, figuring out how best to make Art Gnome available um, to, to everybody, right? So, I mean, I love this term money ball for art. Was that just a play on the movie, you know, to get people's attention or... Yeah, not not at all. So I actually, um, one question that might come up is, how does a kid who su- sucks at math end up making like a database about analytics, right? Um, I, I know, I'm like, I'm still confused as to how this all came together. I love it though. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got into uh, fantasy basketball and like basketball analytics like 10 years ago when it was just starting out and like became part of the community and launched a pretty well-known site with my uh, my software engineer, younger brother. And that, uh, having something I cared about, taught me a bunch about analytics and data and statistics and how to uncover things that you're, uh, new, new information about things that you're passionate about. And I saw how important it was that data become available. Once the data becomes available, the hard part's getting all the data. And once that's available, 
all kinds of smart people come out of the woodwork, come up with new ideas. And it literally changed business. It changed, um, you know, sports. It's changed like this whole analytics revolution. But you look at um, art and for some reason, and this comes back to your Moneyball, uh, why I use Moneyball in the, the book slash movie Moneyball. There are these scouts, right, that are like looking at players and they're like, oh, this guy's too short. This guy walks kind of funny. You know, they're like, we don't we don't want these guys because um, we've been around the game and we know, you know, people that are too short to, to play, just rule them out. But Billy Bean brings in these analytics savvy folks that that look at things that you can't catch with your own eyes. Right. And they surface all these players that by traditional standards, everyone would have passed over. Um, but it turns out they're great. Right. It's just we, we don't have we have so many biases um, as humans that you can catch when you look at things from a much broader analytical view that they were able to surface these things, right? So Moneyball for art, in my opinion, um, you know, stop me when I start ranting because this is where I, I definitely, this is where I, I will definitely go on a rant here. Yeah, like, all what, right. What we know about art is like depressing and sad, right? So yeah. like just basic questions like uh, how many paintings did Pollock paint or Rothko paint or these, you know, like if you Google that, which is where everyone goes to get their information today, like you can't really get consistent answers on just like, forget like fancy analytics, just like how many are there and where are they? Like things like that are just aren't out there. And it's because all the information when available is locked up in books. So you can't really run analytics on a bunch of like paper books. Right. So uh, this is, this is where the inspiration for sort of the money ball side comes. Like, Right now, I'm pretty sure I'm the only guy on the planet that can tell you like the average dimensions of like a, a Cezanne painting or whatever, right? Like, and maybe that sounds more like a like a parlor trick or something kind of silly. But if you go and read like when people sell paintings like auction houses or whatever, inevitably they're like, oh well, one of the larger blackboard paintings by Cy Twombly is on sale or whatever. But it's all conjecture, right? There's no no one has no one has the data for like even the most basic. Um, adjectives that people are using so uh getting the data is really exciting it's like it's like skiing in virgin snow right there's like i'm not necessarily the world's smartest like most analytical person but the fact that i've got good clean data across many artists means i'm discovering stuff like fairly regularly that that no one could have possibly seen before that's amazing so i mean what are what are some of the ways that your team or others have used this database yeah, so um, largely I've been using it to produce articles. I've had a few um, investors and collectors reach out with interest and done some sort of light work um, with them. But part of the where does their interest come from, or what what, what are they interested in? Yeah, yeah. So um, without divulging too much uh, information uh, about like you know giving away people's trade secrets or whatever, a big part of it is people don't more than honing in on a specific. Uh, work that they should buy. They don't want to buy a real lemon, right? People want to like rule out um, anything that seems like a real outlier. Because um, if you're, you know, people, people spend a lot of money on art, you know, up to hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And um, while a lot of people buy purely for passion, that doesn't uh, negate the fact that it's a significant investment. So you want to understand the market and you're looking for any sort of like black swan type event, like something that's like really out there um, that could kind of screw you over uh, investment wise. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. So, I mean, what kind of, with, what kind of data are you, you collecting? I mean, you mentioned dimensions, number of pieces. Yeah. So um, 
catalog resume have a bunch of factual type information, right? Like so, like height, width, uh, materials, uh, when it was made, looking at how many total works were made, and I think that's exciting um, from sort of like a scholastic view. Like you know, like if you were going to write a paper and you could figure out how like. Uh, things like wars or macroeconomic factors could change production or like when people get married or someone dies in the family, does that change uh, what they produce? But from a collector standpoint, uh, what I start to do is blend the catalog resume data with auction data. And once you blend that, now you've got, uh, for the first time ever, some supply side information, like what's actually out there tied to what it sells for. So you can do, uh, I have like market cap information basically on these artists and you can look at maybe, maybe artist A, you don't think he's that good. Artist B you think is great, but because artist A made twice as much work, their market cap may be like really, really high. Um, and you can look at that and say, well, I, I think that Eventually, especially if people become more analytical about this, eventually that person's market is going to is going to drop. They've kind of flooded their own market, but people don't realize it is as much yet. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's certainly that's that's one of many areas that, you know, that you can sort of evaluate with the data. And I remember like watching Moneyball and, and, you know, part of what came out of that was they weren't just looking or, you know, they started just looking at some of the data that was out there, the stats that kind of mattered. And then, you know, eventually they came up with sort of new uh data like uh paradigms or characteristics that, that that mattered right so there was like the one of like the on base percentage thing which they looked at which no one had ever looked at before is there any like data that surprised you in coming this or kind of like out of it where you realize like wow like this really matters more than than another thing that i thought would matter uh so i'd love to give you like a really fancy um answer that you could only get to from my database but the thing that shocks me more than anything, and, and it actually kind of dwarfs the insights that come from my database, is uh, the disparity in gender for, for art. So uh, art by women sells for uh, dramatically less than, than men, depending on what study you look at. It can be as much as 40% less. Wow. So like the, these nuances of like, well, is there a correlation between um, color and value of a given artist? Like the, those smaller things that I'm starting to uncover by working with some data scientists and stuff are um, are actually pretty small. Like if, if, if I had, you know, enough money, right, if I had millions of dollars and I was buying work, I would just exclusively buy art by by women um, because a, it's socially smart. It's the right thing to do. Right. There's no reason to believe that they're. Um, any uh, better or worse off in creating art than, than men are. And B, I think the world is eventually going to get smart enough to realize that and the market will correct for it. Huh. What, um, what's been some of the biggest roadblocks that you've had in, in this journey? Uh, getting, getting access to the books. So uh, what people may or may not realize, I'm guessing most people don't realize, is that catalog resume, so like Picasso's catalog resume until recently cost $200,000 um, someone bought the rights to it recently and is putting out a twenty thousand dollar version. Um, but these aren't these aren't books that you go like downtown to your library, or, like down the street, and like just access them, right? So the information is is really hard to find. Um, so accessing the books and then finding ways to turn that um, into data has been has been an exciting journey, but certainly challenging. Yeah. So thinking about that and carrying it forward to to art now, I mean. In, in the database that you've created, do you plan on making it accessible to the public? 
I do. Uh, part of the struggle with where I'm at now is I need to find a way to monetize um, the project so that I can make it bigger. So it's been, you know, I've probably maxed out uh, my discretion over the last few years. Yeah. Um, and the two options that the sort of venues I have are to like engage collectors more, which, you know, is certainly maybe part of the puzzle, but they tend to want to keep the, understandably, to keep the data to themselves. And my real, really my goal from the beginning was to make this widely open, like, because I saw what happened with basketball data when that became more broadly available. A lot of really smart people come in and you have more people working on it and the new discoveries start to come out of it and it kind of changes the field. So I'm actually uh, pretty excited. I'm talking to um, some friends of mine that are building a blockchain-based uh, art market, and we're talking about potentially setting it up so that folks can uh, sponsor uh, works within the database as a way to sort of raise money. Um, so there's sort of this uh, uh, idea that there'd be like, you could go in and maybe I start with Van Gogh or whatever, and I think I might make all the works free initially. So if you have uh, a MetaMask wallet, which is just a, a way to um, buy things using Ethereum. You know, you I would give it to you for free. But if I give enough people enough of these things for free, maybe there's a market that emerges and they start to trade and buy and sell. And then I, I can set up the smart contract so that I can take a percentage of the future sale. And people will know that the intent is to use that to build the database, right? Yeah. So I don't know. It's a creative way that maybe allows me to go broader. I like that. And for the listeners out there, Ethereum is, is another cryptocurrency similar to, to Bitcoin, which probably more people are familiar with. Um, would you agree? Who who do you think benefits eventually the most from, from this database? I mean, not even now, but like in the longer run. Mm, yeah. One of the things I've had to do is adjust my um, expectations and remember that not everybody is is as crazy as I am about art and art history. Like, you know, as I like passionately explain this to some people, a lot of times I get sort of like a, a one sentence answer where people are like, oh, yeah, I guess for like for like art history students or whatever, you know, um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, not everybody, not everybody's as crazy about this as I am. Um, but I think I, I think it can't hurt to have um, more art available online. So, like, I put it this way uh, in a the copyright free images like artists that that died over 70 years ago their work becomes copyright free but a lot of the artists that we get excited about like the abstract expressionists and stuff their work is all still copyrighted um so if i can find a way to raise some funds and get more of that art publicly available so everyone can see it i think it benefits hopefully everyone and anyone that's interested in art because like i don't know i think you'll probably agree with me having context beyond just seeing an isolated work and like knowing more about all the works often helps people understand, especially like abstract art. Like if you see the black, uh, Casimir Malevich is like a, a black square, right? People are like, that's just a dumb black square. Art's bullshit. Like what's this all about? But uh, if you look at all of his work and see how it evolves into that, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I, I see. It's like, it's a note in a symphony when it's just one note. It's like, yeah, that's dumb. Right. right? Yeah. I love that. I mean, and you and you write a lot about um, identifying with art, like you talked about earlier too. You know, at a, at a young age, um, and you, as you just said, kind of like assumed arts for everyone, um, but that's not always the case. How do you see technology, uh, in, you know, improving or enabling and making art more accessible and approachable? Yeah. So technology is largely a tool, in my opinion. Um, I do think there are ways that technology will help, but 
what I'm most excited about, uh, the millennials get a lot of shit, I think, for being like uh, overly sensitive and stuff like that. But I, I love uh, what I'm seeing coming out of this millennial generation. I think they're just much more inclusive. And, you know, I don't see any of the uh, sexism and homophobia and racism that I saw, you know, in the 80s when I when I was young or whatever. So I think um, the fact that and I, I also see it in a lot of like the blockchain community, right, which is folks that are younger than me for the most part. They they're interested in these ideas of sort of universal basic income. So they're using the blockchain community is largely younger folks that are trying to apply technology to. I hate this term. I actually tweeted the other day that we should stop using it altogether, but because it's overused, but democratize art. Right. So mm -hmm. they're trying to use technology to make it um, so that maybe folks that couldn't afford to uh, buy art before, maybe you can build new markets um, and artists that couldn't find like to be more succinct about it, when I graduated from art school in the 90s, the goal was you try to find a gallery to represent you. Mm -hmm. And then you would try to find like uh, one or two wealthy patrons that maybe would buy your work out of that gallery. But uh, now, right, you can hop on the Internet. And if you, you know, if you your work is good, um, you know, the algorithm, if people start looking at it for a, a long enough time, Google picks up on that. You move up in the SEO and before it was still difficult to find ways to sell it. But with these new blockchain based art markets, especially if you're like a digital artist, mm -hmm. you can um, you can sell your work either fractionally where five people could buy your work. So maybe it's less expensive that way. Or you could make a digital edition of like 500 copies of one digital work, which means you can sell it um, for a dollar or two dollars. Right. Instead of for like one piece for five hundred dollars. Right. Which makes it I think makes it a new market where it's a little bit more affordable for folks to get in. Yeah. The, um, the, the whole thing around democratization in our world is interesting. Uh, and it, it, I was on a panel that they, talk, they talked a lot about more like democratization to access to the art world. And yeah, I mean, I think people are approaching it and kind of thinking about it very differently. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of it is um, actually making art right so i think the reason why i was never intimidated by by art is because from an early age i was drawing and painting and i think getting people so like a car right when my car breaks the, my car is a black box to me i have no clue why my car is broken i just shovel money over to somebody who i think understands it right and i think some people collect art that way they never tried to draw or paint or whatever and they want to they want to own some art maybe so they shovel money to somebody who's going to tell them what they should buy or something like that but i think I'd encourage people to um, to to do to participate more, to to draw and paint and sculpt and you know try to be uh, explore their own creativity because I think that that helps you understand art in a much different way. Um, it's not not something you just buy, right? I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content behind the scenes footage and a chance to be our super fan of the week and let me tell you this is pretty cool 
super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. Drawing is actually one of the few things like we're, we're born with, you know, and it's cheesy, but you think back to like the cavemen, it was like, you know, they, they figured out how to eat and then make fire and then they were painting on the walls and, and we do that, but then we lose it, you know, and, and usually in grade school and by being able to uh, at least attempt it and understand it, I think, um, you know, you would, like you said, appreciate why the piece that's hanging, you know, at a coffee shop is worth $500 or, um, you know, at least like have a better understanding. It's interesting too, like you talk to people and, and those who don't know about art are most impressed with realism when actually that's the easiest uh, to draw uh, when you become, uh, you know, an artist is, is, tra- is training your eye. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is interesting. And to your question about tech, um, I, I love there's this site, uh, Dada NYC out there right now. They've been for like five years. They built a, a social uh, community based on drawing instead of writing. And people from all over the world with all different skill sets who speak all different languages go on and contribute. And you can actually extend each other's drawings and like communicate and riff off of them or whatever. And it's a safe community environment where um, people aren't attacking each other and trolling each other. It's really supportive. And I, I think that's a great example of, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to say democratizing art, but it's a to be more specific, it's a great example of uh, giving people a safe venue to explore their own creativity and get feedback and grow, which I think I don't see that as entirely separate from appreciating art either. I think it's, you know, as you build those skills, you learn to appreciate art more. I like that. What's your opinion on this commonly heard statement that art is subjective? that art is what subjective uh yeah i think art is is subjective it's part of what i love about it right so i mean what i'm what i'm building in the analytics side is much less subjective it's it's a less subjective lens to look at art but it doesn't kill um sort of the the subjective side of it so i think art is open to interpretation like your response to a painting is different than my response to a painting and it's sort of that's kind of what's partially brilliant about it right but that doesn't take away from the fact that we can't uh, measure certain things right so Mm -hmm. what i what i say is if you love something you want to know as much about it as you can right um and i don't think it kills it to to bring in a quantifying element like back to to basketball i see basketball as being like visual poetry i actually love like the i think it's just beautiful game to watch right um, but when I started analyzing it statistically, it didn't kill it. It didn't make me not appreciate like a crazy slam dunk or a block shot or whatever. Right. And it's the same for, for art. Um, you know, knowing how, so right now I'm, I'm working on a piece where we're trying to measure abstraction during, P- uh, Mondrian's, um, entire career or whatever. So he starts with these amazing, like realistic paintings and drawings, and then moves towards the square simplified images that everybody looks at. Uh, uh, five-year-old could do that or this that and the other what they don't know is that he was a phenomenal draftsman and could draw realistically like as well as anybody so what we're trying to do is develop algorithms to sort of measure that over time as a way to sort of bring attention to like you know what is abstraction what does that even mean Mm. right 
What, um, yeah, changing uh, tune a little bit, the, I was just thinking about this, this Leonardo da Vinci piece that went for $400 million, which set a record as like the most expensive single piece sold during auction to date. Would your database agree with the value that it was sold at? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. I inevitably get asked the most about the outliers like the things that are like way out there. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that data is not great at is catching um, outliers, right? Like by definition, the things that fall way outside of what's normal um, are hard to predict. So, yeah, I wouldn't ha have caught that, um, but I found it I found it interesting. I think it's good for art in that like people that normally wouldn't care started to pay attention, but it kind of reinforces this idea that art's just like trophy hunting for rich people or whatever. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that part maybe is as good, um, but I'm glad that it drew some attention um, to, to the art world. Yeah. But I, I do agree with the forest uh, statement that it is, a bit of, it reinforces the negative side, which is that people just think that it's, you know, I can't afford art because that, that piece is $400 million. Um, thinking on the other side, you know, your web uh, site, you talk that one of the goals um, of Art Gnome is to improve opportunities for artists from historically underserved or marginalized groups. And I mean, you talked about women earlier, but like, what about underrepresented artists? Um, you know, sort of um, emerging artists or ones who, who recently graduated from their MFA? How do you see it helping them? Yeah. So my true north is uh, the two things that when I get confused uh, as to what I'm doing or why I care about any of this, the two things that always bring sort of energy back to me. One is to try to improve the historical record, which is a lot of what we've been talking about the database. And the other is to try to make better opportunities for um, for artists, because I, I felt like there wasn't enough opportunity when I came out of undergrad. And maybe now that I'm a little better off and a little older and wiser, maybe I can help um in some way and part of that you've kind of called out where i try to draw attention to the fact that women deserve um more recognition for their their work and uh in history um but i would say some of these newer forms um to your point about recent graduates some of these newer things that are happening around blockchain are really exciting to me because one of the things blockchain does potentially is allow people to stay somewhat anonymous um when presenting their work. And there's a lot of new uh, people building marketplaces that are actually for the first time ever, I've never seen like an artist shortage, right? Like that sounds crazy. There's usually more artists than there are opportunities. Yeah. But, but there are all of these new blockchain markets that are hitting me up pretty much weekly saying like, hey, do you know artists that I can like promote and put on my site and we're not gonna take any commission, right? So there's a huge opportunity um, for artists to, to join these blockchain markets right now um, which is great for artists in general. And then the fact that you can choose if you want to, to be somewhat anonymous, right? Means um, you shouldn't have to choose to be anonymous uh, just because maybe you're in a, a, a minority group or whatever, but it does give you a layer of protection where what you're producing is going to be judged based on what you're producing, not on your gender or your race or your religion or your geography or whatever, which yeah. is kind of kind of neat. But so much of why people buy art is, is for the s story you know, and that connection to perhaps the artist or the specific piece. I wonder how that tension will, will play out. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. Um, I think relationships, um, are still important and, um, you know, people will want to know more, uh, about the artist, but I don't know, like, uh, I'm not a Banksy expert, but you know, he's, uh, my understanding is he's fairly mysterious and has a pretty healthy market. So maybe not everybody goes that direction. Um, 
but I, I think there's certainly a market for for that kind of more mysterious work or whatever but um it also brings technology can bring people from further away closer together so again back to sort of like the the data nyc or even these blockchain markets in the old days your your local gallery was probably showing for the most part people that were like somewhat regional or or nearby right but um when art becomes more digital uh, it's very easy for it to to literally be global so you you know i mean thinking for you i mean you talk about blockchain digital art I mean, do you see, you know, and some argue that, you know, artists use the medium of the day. Do you see when looking ahead that, you know, all art will be digital or, or kind of like what percentage of you do you think will be more digital? Yeah, I don't think all art will be digital and I don't think blockchain markets will um, and, and digital markets will actually damage or upend the traditional uh, Sotheby's Christie's type markets. I think there'll be new markets that serve sort of a, a class of uh you know the the middle class uh who maybe felt like there were the, the walls were too high to scale to get into the traditional art world um but have always been interested in art right um so uh percentage wise uh, I, I don't know it's it would be hard to say but i do know that we spend most of our days 10 hours plus is what i've read recently at least in the united states staring at screens and I'll tell you, I don't stare at my bedroom wall or my walls in my living room for 10 hours. So the idea that art will meet people where they are um, seems pretty obvious to me. Um, yeah. you know, That's it. I love that. It's, I've actually heard that like three times this week about meeting them where they are, uh, both in a digital sense and actually even in like an analog sense of uh, group uh, command in New York that is like pop-up museums, like six by six foot. And, and where they go to like bus stops and also places that people are, how they say it, like more inhumane or not humane where it's like like uh airport lobbies or like doctor's offices and so again like the idea of going to them i think instagram is actually a platform that's been successful with artists because it's visual and it's curated but also it's kind of gone to where like people are i mean the middle class or common people or more people or whatever and 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 that's why i think artists have had so much success on that versus like tumblr and some others where it was actually just more creatives not as much of like a general audience yeah, no, that makes sense. Getting out in front of people um, that aren't necessarily looking for art, right? Yeah, um, and, and trying to, to figure out how to pique their interest and make them feel like there's there's can meet, them. But, but meeting them where they are versus like oh you know a museum or a gallery even using technology in different ways, but rather like go to where the people are to get them to come in and kind of you know connecting the um, having a range of art. I mean, in a way, it's like even music we talk about. Uh, you know, I mean, in music, you've got everything from kind of like, like Justin Bieber to, you know, jazz ensembles or, or symphonies. And, you know, I think the art world just has like the highbrow. They don't have, I mean, there is, but it's not even appreciated as much of like the folk art or digital or like whatever you want to call. It. And so having kind of like the stepping stones, if you will, um, I think will, you know, is good. Like what you talked about, like creating new markets with digital art and reaching more of the middle class. Yeah, and you know, lowbrow becomes highbrow, right? I mean, yeah. you understand you understand art history. I understand art history. So, like, I I think uh, memes and gifts. I get I get flack for this, but I I regularly say memes and gifts are the most important art of this generation. Um, they swayed the election, right? Um, and people look at this like my my friends in the more traditional art world will look at like crypto art, and they'll be like. If this is all that crypto art can come up with, then, you know, I'm not really impressed or whatever. But I'm like, well, of course you're not if you're part of the establishment, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. it's always, I mean, we've seen this 
play out over and over and over again. And, you know, digital tools are the new tools and crypto art uses a lot of memes and things that are intentionally excluding um, older people or people that are sort of more traditional um, in their understanding of things. No different than like graffiti art in the late 70s and early 80s. It was seen as a menace and now it sells for, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, so, yeah, I think I think crypto art is uh, a great example to back to your point about there's only highbrow art out there. Well, things like crypto art is sort of like the art of the people. And I won't be surprised if it becomes valuable in the future. Yeah. Um, what uh, what would you like to see um, as far as the internet, like how technology is used to help? the arts is there anything that you know whether you're talking to artists or the art world or maybe an entrepreneur who's thinking about an idea that you know you'd like to see happen more uh yeah i think i i would just like to see um obviously more of the data available right so i think in the the 90s when i took art history class i used the same textbook everyone did written and edited by a white guy so i thought that art was something that only white guys made because there weren't a lot of women or people from other countries in my textbook um and then we had the internet, and now we have the opportunity to have a much more representative spectrum of art available to everyone, because everyone's got smartphones and things like that. So I think the more we can do to um, maybe even arguably rewrite art history to be a little bit more inclusive and realistic in terms of people's contributions, um, the our digital tools can help us um, make that uh, more get that more realistic view out to a lot of people. I mean, part of what we were saying about making art more accessible is when you look in an art book or on a website or go to a museum, you should see art created by people that look like you, right? And that's not always, you know, a different gender or a different color or whatever, which, you know, is unfortunate. So I'd say that on the art history side and then on the art making side or like art, like collecting side, um, I think we're, we're just now getting over our awkwardnesses over wanting to make physical art digital. And if we can respect digital art as its own thing and keep it digital, like you don't have to print out your your GIF and frame it and hang it on the wall, um, like let it live and be digital. Um, I, I I think that'll be healthy, too. Yeah, I love it. What an ambitious and beautiful vision. Jason, this has been so much fun. Um, I'm going to I'm going to let you go. But before I do, can we do a quick rapid fire? I love the rapid fire. I've all been right. All day for the rapid uh, fire. All right. You ready? Subjectively speaking, who is your favorite artist and why? Oh, favorite artist. So uh, I'm just going to go first answer, best answer. Uh, uh, Eva Hess, um, who's a, a sculptor painter. Um, she she died fairly young, but made an amazing amount of uh, inspirational work. Uh, and her paintings are, I think, underappreciated. Most people know her for her sculpture. But yeah, every time I look at her work, it just makes me uh, makes me feel good. Great. We'll, we'll link to her in the show notes. Okay. Objectively speaking, who's the most valuable artist? Ooh, objectively speaking. I'm going to have to say um, either Picasso. Yeah, I'm just going to go with Picasso. He made so much work and it all sells for so much. This isn't, but, you know, disclaimer, this isn't coming from my database. Oh, but, uh, come on. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. We'll say it's coming from the database. Objectively speaking, uh, Picasso has the, the largest market cap. All right, great. If you could be any color or make a new one in the crayon box, what would it be? Whew, any color. You know, when I had the, the crayons when I was a kid, I used to love those weird silvery gold ones. I could never find out a good way to like use them. 
Um, but like maybe I'd be like the the weird like silvery gold Crayola crayon that uh, I haven't found a good purpose for just yet. All right, I love it. I, I'm going to keep going because I got some going for you. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Uh, yeah, superpower. What would it be and why? Uh, I think. Ooh, I don't know. I think you might have stumped me on on the superpower. Um, I think I'd like to be able to. Oh, I know. This one's easy. Um, I'd be able to just make it possible so that all the data on all the art was available to everyone. There, there yeah, you there go. What a, the, the politically correct answer. Okay, last one. And the most important is when will the Red Sox win the World Series again? Oof, when will the So I am not a Red Sox fan. I'm a Celtics fan. And they will, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to be like Fine. a politician. Yeah. I'm going to answer the question I want to answer. The Celtics will win next year. It's great that there are as many injuries as there are because it's going to give the young players a chance to get a lot of time in the playoffs. Yeah. So expect when we all come back healthy next year, um, diehard Celtics fan, it'll be 2019. We will get another banner. I love it. Who's going to win this year? Uh, this year, I'm going to go with Golden State, although I think they have the Spurs in the first round which is pretty tough. Yeah. But if they get past the Spurs, um, the Cavs don't look as strong as they have in the past. I think the East is kind of weak, so I'm going to give it to the Golden State. Jason, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being on State of the Art. And uh, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, so I'm at Art Gnome on Twitter. Uh, I'm on there on a regular basis. And then you can just email me at Jason at Art Gnome if you have um, any uh, questions you want to shoot me. Please check out the Art Gnome blog. I also have the Dank Rares podcast. I'm a, I'm pretty prolific. And then actually th this, uh, if I can pitch it, yeah, July 17th in London, Christie's has a, a day-long conference about art and tech uh, called Is the Art World Prepared for Consensus? Focusing on blockchain. I'm going to be moderating two panels there, which I'm super excited about. Um, so if you're in the London area, um, definitely try to check that out. Jason, thanks so much, man. Have a great uh, great time and good luck on the panels. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to State of the Art. And be sure to follow Art Gnome on Twitter and Instagram at Art Gnome. That's A-R-T-N-O-M-E. You can also check out their blog at artgnome.com. And tune in next week for our conversation with artist Nancy Cahill. She created her own augmented reality app that allows you to interact with her art, explore her studio, and hear her story all from the comforts of your own home. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're gonna wanna show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.